E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Today at the All Drink to That podcast, we're celebrating 400 episodes. We put together a little retrospective, and as a thank you to you, our listeners, we're dedicating this episode to your favorite moments over the past 400 releases. Whenever we get feedback about the episodes, it's always an opportunity to connect with someone who listens. And one of my favorite listeners that I've gotten to know over the years is Drew DiMatteo, He's a wine collector who lives in New Jersey, but he has plans to move to Sonoma. Drew and I have become friends through the podcast, and we even catch up for a meal once in a while. Here's Drew talking about some of his favorite episodes. You know, I was thinking about what my favorite episodes are, and, uh, you know, some of them are people that I've met, friends of mine, I love their wines. So I'm thinking, are those my favorite episodes, or... Is it just influenced because I know the people like uh, Pax Maley and Hardy Wallace, Megan Glab? I really enjoyed all of those episodes. For the most part, when I listen, it's about learning, education. Uh, Ian Dakita, his Barolo episode was unbelievable. When you first start learning about wine, one of the things you realize first is you don't know nearly as much as you thought, and there's so much to learn. When I listened to that episode, I was like, wow, <laughs> there is a lot more to learn about Barolo than I thought. I think I actually want to study Barolo more and go back and listen to that episode again. It was so good. Also, Jean-Louis Chave was another really great one. But probably my favorite episode is Carol Meredith. Carol Meredith had all the elements I would want. I laughed, I cried, I learned. I remember I was driving a car while I was listening to that. And when she got to the part where she was talking about finding out the origin of Zinfandel in Croatia, it's like, I got to pull over because I wanted to concentrate completely on what she was saying. And 
it was so interesting. Everything that had to happen for that, it gave me goosebumps, actually. So let's hop over to Carol Meredith's episode and revisit that moment. But fair warning, you might need to pull over if you're driving. I got interested in uh, trying to find the home of Zinfandel. I know it came from Europe. In the 70s, people noticed Primitivo in Italy, and some people at Davis went to Italy and tasted it and said, hey, it tastes like Zin. They brought some Primitivo plants back, said, wow, it looks like Zin. And this was before DNA analysis, but some more rudimentary analysis said, you know, this, I think this is Zin. When our DNA tools came along, we analyzed Primitivo. Yeah, guess what? They're the same variety, just two names for the same variety. But the Italians said, but it's not Italian. We know it, we know it didn't get here till probably the late 1700s, so we know it's not Italian. All you have to do is look at a map and look at the boot of Italy, which is where Primitivo was grown in Apulia, and that little Adriatic Sea. That's just a little thing. You know, ferries go back and forth. It's not very wide. And on the other side is the Dalmatian coast of Croatia. Obvious place to look. Obvious place to look. And the main wine grape grown there is Plavac Mali. And Mike Gurgic, who owns Gurgic Hills Winery in California and Vinja Gurgic in Croatia, he is Croatian. He had long thought that Plavac Mali from his homeland tasted so much like Zinfandel in his new land that they were probably the same. But we had already tried that one because we had Plavitz Mali growing in our collection at Davis. We knew they weren't the same, but we did know that they were relatives because remember, we know how to recognize relatives. So we knew that they were close relatives and that one was probably the parent of the other. Either Zin's the parent of Plavitz Mali or vice versa. So we knew then that Croatia, the Dalmatian coast of Croatia, that that's got to be where we should look I didn't know anybody there. Mike Gurgic knew a lot of people there and wanted to help me, but he didn't know the right people there, so it was kind of frustrating. But serendipity plays a big role in science. And so here I am. It's December of 1997. And for a few months, I had been trying to figure out how am I going to get to Croatia because I think I need to go there because we'd looked at every Croatian grape we had in the university collection I didn't have anybody else to talk to about trying to get some more. So I need contacts. I get an email in December of 1997 from a guy named Ivan Pejic. And his email said, Dear Dr. Meredith, this is, this is how he talks. Dear Dr. Meredith, my name Ivan Pejic. I am Professor Plant Genetics, University Zagreb. We are studying our autochthonous Croatian grapes and we want to identify all of our genetic resources and preserve them. And we think your DNA methods could be helpful to us. Would you help us? And I said, hell yes. You know, I said, well, yes, I can help you. I'm looking for Zinfandel. And I think it's there. Will you help me? He says, well, I've never heard of Zinfandel, but sure. So it was a perfect, just a perfect fit. They wanted to study all their Croatian grapes, and among those I suspected was Zinfandel. We just have to find it. I've got the tools. They got the grapes. We've got a connection. Just perfect, you know, just perfect. So then we started planning to work together, and we planned that the next May I would go. I would go to Croatia. So in May, I flew into Zagreb, 
and I stayed at the Zagreb Sheraton, and Yvonne and I had agreed to meet in the lobby of the Zagreb Sheraton, and there's all this explaining how to recognize me, you know, I've, I've got a beard, I've got short gray hair, blah, blah, blah. So I, I've I, never I, noticed your beard, Carol. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yes, yes, it, I, shaved, I shaved very closely this morning. So I go into the lobby, and I'm looking for Yvonne, and I see this very serious guy sitting on a couch, and he's looking at me, and I can see, you know, short gray hair, it's got to be her. So it's like, Yvonne, Carol, yes, so good, okay, shake hands. Still a little stiff, you know, so we go out to the car, and he's got, I don't know what it was, a Yugo or something, you know, some, some little rickety Eastern European car, because now this is 1998, May 1998. Croatia had not been independent for very long. It had been part of Yugoslavia. They had uh, had a big civil war. The individual republics broken away, but still very much a post-communist feel about the whole place, especially the cars. Like you could have been in a John le Carre novel. For yeah, a moment oh there. yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is cold and gray, you know. So we go out to the street and we get into Ivan's little Yugo or whatever it is. We get in the car, and he pops a cassette in. It's the Allman Brothers. Oh, we're friends. We're friends. So, I mean, that, oh, just talk about melting the ice. You know, music, universal, universal language, right? So, yeah, so we became friends, and we are still good friends. He is just a fine, fine person. And I very soon met his colleague, Eddie Malatic, also at uh, the University of Zagreb, and those are, those are my two Croatian collaborators. Is he more of a Doobie Brothers guy? You know, I don't know. I don't know because Ivan is is more of a soulmate to me. Got it. Uh, Eddie's been a little stiffer, and I haven't spent nearly as much time talking to Eddie as I have to Ivan. Ivan and I are more on the same wavelength about a lot of things. And Eddie's quite a bit younger, and maybe that's part of it. And and Eddie's trained as a viticulturist, whereas Yvonne is trained as a geneticist. So scientifically, we're more on the same wavelength, too. That other guy might be a Guns N' Roses guy, is what you're trying to say. He might be. I don't know. You know, I'm trying to remember, because I, th- I think we must have talked music at, at some point. I mean, Guns N' Roses is good for plant people, right? You know, I don't know. I've never been a big Axl Rose fan myself. I, I could never. Just I, going off the name. Though. Yeah, I, I could. I understand. I, I get it. I get it. It just wasn't that funny is what you're trying to tell me. Well, That's, nice. <laughs> That's it, nice. I got it. I got it. But, you know, I, I just couldn't find a connection there. No. So anyway, so we started a program of searching through Croatian grapes. And the first trip, I took samples back with me. But then from then on, after that, Yvonne and Eddie would go out into vineyards themselves. And what they would do is they would talk to they would talk to old guys because we knew that Zinfandel couldn't be a mainstream grape in Croatia or else we'd already know it, you know. It, it would be obvious. And besides their project, their project was focused on finding all the weird stuff that they maybe didn't even know existed because for them it was their patrimony that was before the well, communist yes, era. And, and they knew that it was in jeopardy. Not from phylloxera this time, but from a global economy. And that was the risk. That was the risk that here they've got a depressed agricultural economy. They've lost a lot of people to wars, to industrialization, to people leaving the land. And the few people that are on the land can't make a living because who wants to buy Croatian Croatian wine because you can't pronounce the names? And so... 
you've got them being tempted by this global economy that's based on Merlot and Chardonnay, you know? And that was what's tempting them. Let's rip out these grapes that nobody can pronounce and plant Merlot and Chardonnay. And this is what Yvonne and Eddie recognized was the big danger. And that's why they had to preserve their viticultural heritage before it was gone. So that's what that was their side of it. Because that's so, happened twice in this story with Montpellier and these guys. It's yeah, almost well, like you took over the role of the monks, like keeping the literature alive during yeah, the Middle Ages. You know what I mean? Like yeah, this has happened yeah. twice where the plant people went out and saved the plants, yes, right? Right. that's right. And it's happened in other countries too. It's happened in, in every grape growing, every old world grape growing country has now got a collection. Uh, France was probably the first to do it, but and Croatia may be the most recent. But in between, there's a whole lot because... The heritage is just huge, you know. It's just it's just huge, and it's so easily lost, especially since you can't store grape varieties as seeds. You have to make a concerted effort, and it's expensive to preserve these things. So Yvonne and Eddie started going to vineyards and taking samples and sending these samples back to me by FedEx at Davis, and they would send me an email, tell me it was coming, and every every little package would have like ten or twelve new varieties that they had found. And so the stuff we collected on my first trip was not Zinfandel, okay, but it was useful to them because it was something new. And then they would send me more and they would say, you know, Carol, I, I think I think sample six, we think this looks a lot like Zinfandel. This might be it. We'd analyze it. No, sorry. Next batch, well we think we think maybe sample sample 15. This this really this really looks like Zin. Uh, this is it this time, Carol. Well sorry. Well, about the third try, Yvonne says, you know, and he was naming, these were all named IP6, IP17, standing for Yvonne Page. So he says, you know, Carol, IP29, I think this this has got to be it. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the boy, you know, the boy who cried wolf. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've heard this story before. Yeah. yeah. So we analyzed it. It was, it was Infidel. It was Infidel, you know, and this was three, after three years of doing this. So now we're talking... 2001, and it was in December. So it was four years almost to the day from when Yvonne first sent me his email. Three years of searching, we found it. And it was in one vineyard on the coast in the town of Castella. And there it was in a vineyard that was mostly Plavitz Molly. Just a few of these vines. I think there were nine vines out of thousands in this vineyard that happened to be Zinfandel. Because that vineyard had been propagated by cuttings from a neighboring vineyard that maybe, you know, just kind of just by accident had carried over the heritage of preceding vineyards. And Zinfandel happened to have made it through that process without anybody really realizing that this wasn't the same as, as the others. So we found Zinfandel. Yvonne and Eddie found it in one more place where it was growing on, on a lady's porch. And there, so in Castella, it was going by the name Cyrilianic Castellansky, which simply means the red from Castella. On the old lady's porch, it was called Pribidrag. And then Yvonne and Eddie went to the Natural History Museum in Split, where there's a collection of dried grapevine samples, the leaves, of everything that had been grown in Croatia around 1900. And in there was a sample called Tribidrag, and it looked like Zin. And here they'd found on this old lady's porch, Tribidrag, 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 and it looks like it. So that's probably Zin. 
but it's it's a dead herbarium specimen. It's just a dead leaf. And the markers don't carry through like you can't. Well, it's dead. You yeah. Know, it, it, yeah. DNA. You have to get DNA from out a live of living thing. things. Yeah, because DNA just decomposes, it deteriorates. So they tried to get DNA that. At the time, people were starting to be able to get DNA out of some old stuff, but not very well. And Yvonne and Eddie tried, weren't successful. And so there it stood that this Tribodrag is probably Zinfandel, but we can't prove it. Ten years later now, so this is 2001, ten years later, another Croatian research group publishes something about getting DNA out of archaeological samples. So Yvonne and Eddie go to those guys and say, hey, we got this old leaf. Could you give it a try? They gave it a try. They were able to get DNA out of this old leaf in the museum, and it matched. And so that confirmed that Tribodrag was Zinfandel. And that's what you call your bottling of Zinfandel today. Yes. And so a historian got involved after that, and he determined that that Tribodrag was a name that was well-known in the 1300s, that it was one of the major wine grapes in the Adriatic wine trade. He found all kinds of documentation. So it's an ancient grape, much, much older than Cabernet Sauvignon. So I think we do have to call it noble. And so in my own vineyard... Did you ask Anne? uh, No, good point. Good point, yes. She she really should have the last say over all the noble grapes, I think. So Anne Noble Rot, too. So when we planted Zinfandel in our own vineyard in Napa, I decided, you know... I got to call this Tribodrag because for me, it pulls my whole life together because I've had this schizophrenic existence as a, a grape researcher, but also as a grape grower and wine producer. And they're kind of separate worlds, but yet the Tribodrag brings it together. What an unbelievable story from Carol Meredith. Thanks for sharing that favorite moment, Drew. It was actually Steve Mathiason that told me about a drink to that. And he saw that I was interested in learning about wine, and he said, there's a podcast you have to listen to. And, you know, that was three years ago. Every time I've seen him since then, I thank him for telling me about I'll drink to that. And a few months ago, I passed through Raleigh, North Carolina, and I met up with a sommelier there, Hai Tran, who's been a listener for years. Hai is the beverage director of the Rittenhouse. We caught up in a bustling pastry and coffee shop in the heart of Raleigh. Let's find out what some of Hai's favorite episodes are. I was like, man, I've, I've listened since episode one, you know, and listened through all of it. And I was like, how am I going to run, where are we at, like 390 yeah. or something now? <laughs> how am I going to pick, like, a few, you know, but... One of the more recent ones that I have still listened to multiple times is the Inda Agra one. That one was just a phenomenal interview because, you know, as much as I've studied and read and even visited the area, he just put a fresh perspective on the way he describes. You know, it just creates a whole new set of imagery and inscriptions and really help further solidify our, um, the knowledge for, you know, the Piemonte, the different communes of the you know, Cruz. You find in Borla and Barbaresco, um, and it's all to see what he's excited about, you know. And as one of those interviews, like when it's over, you know, you're just like, um, when is part two coming out? You hear that, Levy? Ian Dakota, part two. The people have spoken. Let's make that happen this year. Let's check out that episode that that a few listeners have mentioned as being one of their favorite episodes. Now, I hate to talk about crew quality because 
you know, to do a true zonation uh, would require years. It's a life's work. You'd have to taste wines for about 50 years. You'd have to find, make sure that you tasted them uh, from producers who work more exactly in the same way. Because clearly if one guy's got vineyards in Terlo and he's macerating six days and, and using barriques that are brand new, and the other guy's got vineyards in Terlo right next door, but he's macerating over 35 days in big oak barrels that have been cleaned in ages, it, it's just too hard. How can you say Terlo? It's very, very hard. So that's why I say it's literally something that would take 60, 50 years to do. But having said that, there is no doubt that there is a general quality to the wines uh, as you move south of the town of Barolo and into the area of Novello, which is the next commune. There are 11 communes that can make Barolo. And just like we have, like I said, St. Estefe and Poyac and Margot, in, in Barolo it's the same thing. So Novello is one of these 11. Now the soils of Novello are actually very, very compact and tough. And they're actually Cerevelian in origin, even though they're sitting right beside the Tortonian soils of Barolo. That's because when the geologic formations happened, they didn't just move straight down, but they moved in a in a circular or clockwise fashion, actually counterclockwise fashion. And uh, Novello, therefore, and therefore the, the, the Barolo communes right above Novello area are characterized by very tough tannins. And where it is less interesting compared to, for example, to the wines of Monforte and Serralunga, tannins are, are really rigid and... Uh, the wines usually don't have quite the depth of flavor as, for example, the best of Monforte and Serralunga, other highly compacted Cerevelian soils. I mean, I love a good Terlo, don't get me wrong, but probably I'd, I'd go for a good Canubi or a good Sarmassa first. You mentioned Novello, and that's an area where a lot of producers in more recent years have moved into to plant. And so it seems like a, an area where every time I turn around, someone has a bottling from Novello. Yeah. So what should I understand about Novello as a place? That's a fantastic question. You get the same thing in Monforte, where everybody now is bottling a Mosconi, and, and, and it's another vineyard that's now hot to trot. Uh, no, you know, the main thing is Novello was an area that had never been uh, really thought of as an area for Barolo and for Nebbiolo. Again, because Nebbiolo now sells so well, and it's a great wine. Everybody's planting Nebbiolo left and right. The credit for the discovery of Novello, per se, really goes to Elvio Cogno, one of the great, great names in Barolo. You know, there are some old-timers, Bartolo Mascarello, no longer with us, Giuseppe Rinaldi, still with us, Mauro Mascarello, and Aldo Conterno, and and all these people, they've really created the myth of Barolo. And Elvio Cogno, who worked for years in La Morra and uh, made some of the great, great wines of La Morra, moved to Novello, because he believed there was an area with huge potential. And he created uh, what was the uh, first major estate there. And he just saw that uh, Novello had potential. And what he saw was, Novello can be a pretty vast area, but there's the central sweet spot, if you will, much like in tennis rackets, that is really can be reduced to the Ravera uh, crew. And the Ravera vineyard is really leaps and bounds ahead of most of the others in, in Novello. There are some other ones that are very good, Bergera and Pizzolle. Um, but Rivera seems to be a very high-quality site where the wines have a little bit more depth and a little bit more complexity than other areas of Novello where the wines tend to be more linear. And speaking of sweet spots, there's a central portion to the central portion, which is Rivera, a central part of the Rivera Vineyard, which is called Bricco Pernice. It's a higher spot. Pernice means partridge. I guess there must have been partridges flying around there in the old days. That gives an even more uh, deep and complex wine, and, and that's when you see that Novello has every right to be considered, along with Serralunga and La Morra and Barolo, as one of the great Barolo communes. David Witkowski, who works with Potomac Selections, importers and distributors, 
He works with some of the winemakers whose interviews are in the All Drink to That podcast. His favorite episode was of one producer who is near and dear to his work. Um, I really enjoyed the episode with Steve Edmonds, hearing his relationship with uh, the the various parcels that he's had the chance to work with over his career, um, and in particular hearing kind of the genesis of the Heart of Gold, um, which began as a Grenache Blanc, and when he couldn't fill a tank, um, he took Vermentino, which is another uh, native grape of the area, to finish it off, um, and after enjoying the blend so much, he's kept it that way since. Putting Gamay on granite was partly just knowing that Gamay and Granite seemed to really like each other in France a lot. And interestingly, Gamay was kicked out of Burgundy because it doesn't generally do very well in limestone. But the, the other thing that was interesting, we, we put, uh, originally put Gamay, uh, you know, the, the planting at Witter's Vineyard, the first planting that we did in 2000 uh, was on volcanic clay loam soil, just like the soil at Fanati, but higher elevation. And it, it gives wine with perfume. That's partly why I was optimistic about how it would do there. But the odd thing was that for the first, I would say, four or five years that we made wine from the Gamay at, at Witters, the red wine seemed to lack much of any tannin. And it was strange. You know, it was, it was sort of like, well, the, the aromas are there, the acidity's there. The focus of flavors is there, but there's no texture. So it was kind of like, you know, the Mona Lisa without hair or something. You know, it, it just didn't didn't come across quite right. And in the meantime, we had been looking for a couple of years for a site with granite. And the Barsodi Ranch, which is a place that has historically mainly just grown apples and produced a lot of apple juice, had taken out a bunch of trees and had a bunch of land that they were willing to make available to plant grapes on. So Ron Mansfield, who's the guy I work with up in the foothills, you know, said, you want to put some out there? And I said, yeah, that looks good. You know, we visited the site and, and uh, it's a bit lower than the Witters, but it's still up real high. You know, it's right around 3000 feet. We put vines in the ground in 2005, got first grapes in 2007 and right out of the chute, the tannin was there, the texture was there, and it was just, it, it had a much more distinctive, as you say, soil signature and and a kind of nerve to it from that, I think, that the Gamay at Witters did not have for red wine, which ultimately kind of led me in the direction that I've taken to, to just reserve the Gamay at Witters for making r rosé uh, and to make all the red wine from the, the Barsodi fruit. One of the things I also associate with your wines quite often, I mean, not in the case of, of lighter Gamay, but is ageability. Mm -hmm. In a time when it seemed like a lot of people in California were going for wine you could drink on release, mm -hmm. you were making wines that really benefited from mm -hmm. a lot of time in the bottle. Mm -hmm. Conscious choice, just what the fruit gave you, how did that come about? I think really more than anything, it's just the way that my nervous system reacts to my raw materials you know it's it's and and i think that kind of goes back to what i was talking about about the question of what's my role you know i'm the person who has to it, the wine has to be made as part of a process of the interaction between the fruit and the winemaker and so so it's not like there's a conscious idea that i've got I'm going to make the wine taste this way, but it's more like this conversation 
that I'm having with the fruit, which leads to these wines that are, for the most part, pretty structured. And I think it's that structure initially that uh, makes it possible for the aging to play out the way it does. The other thing I think, and, and this is something that has evolved over the years, part of this narrative that I keep trying to construct for myself about what I'm doing. I started, this was actually after um, a, a tasting I did in Chicago with Robert Mayberry, who'd written a book about the Rhone, who spent a couple of months every year in the Rhone during the summer. He was a instructor at a college in Michigan during the rest of the year. And then in the summer, he'd go live in, in the Vaucluse. But he invited me and another winemaker to Chicago for a weekend in 1989 to taste through a bunch of uh, multiple vintages of mostly not super well-known, but very, very good Southern Rhone red wines, uh, Grenache, Morvedra, Syrah blends. And what I was struck by there were wines, this was 1989, there were wines going all the way back to the early 70s that were in, that had such freshness and, and such liveliness, not primary fruit, it was definitely evolved, but the wine still had so much energy. And interestingly, I discovered after a certain amount of research and asking questions, most of the wines were actually made in concrete and never touched wood. But the other thing is that they were often in the bottle prior to the succeeding harvest. And the kind of um, ongoing model at that point in California, which still I think for the most part is a model today, is you put your wines in wood and you leave them there for a couple of years, you know, or maybe a year and a half, in some cases maybe two or three years. And and they get better, you know, from that. And that suddenly it started to make sense to me that that wasn't necessarily the the thing that I wanted to be doing nor what I felt would give me a successful outcome. And I actually made a wine in 1989 that I had already fermented and it was in, we were using old punchins at the time. So it was in wood, but it was in these larger, you know, like 20 year old punchins, but it was still real primary and, and pretty fresh. And when I came back from Chicago, I started recognizing things in the wines that I was, had been tasting in these wines from the Rhone at, at the tasting in Chicago and kind of putting things together in my head in a different way and decided to start bottling in the, you know, in the early summer uh, following the vintage, get the wines into bottle real fresh and let them do most of the aging in the bottle. And I think that has a huge part to play in that whole thing of, you know, how do the wines age? And I just got to catch up with a listener in California, Nathan, so I'm here at Thomas Fogarty Vineyards in Santa Cruz, California, talking to Nathan Candler, the wine grower. And we were just talking about some favorite episodes. What is one of your favorite episodes? Gosh, I think one of my favorite episodes is the episode uh, featuring Dorothy Chelichev, who gave such an amazing uh, account of one of the most important historical figures in the modern California wine industry. It was pretty inspiring as a winemaker in California to hear how some of his life went down. Part of it was amazing, and I didn't realize his reach extended up into Washington State uh, and all the way down into Southern California. He was kind of everywhere, making uh, some nearly all the best wines in California at the time. And sort of the geopolitical aspect of his history in, in Eastern Europe I thought was quite fascinating. 
Well, his father was a chief justice of the Court of Appeals in Moscow, and he was declared an outlaw. And for quite a time, and I don't know how long, the father never was able to stay in one place at one time. And um, He thought he might be assassinated. Yeah. And then a friend in Moscow that he had helped managed to get him false passports. And so the family left Russia on, on a train and went down down as far as they could go on the train. And then they walked through. At that time, they were on, there was a German line there. And at that time, they had to walk through the woods and get through the German line. And Andre's grandmother was Prussian. So in their family, one of the languages that they did was French and one was German. And they managed to make it through. And then they joined the white Russian army down there then. So after Andre had been in school, yeah. Mr. De La Tour went to Europe. Well, Andre, he did work in Tokai for a while. After school, about a year or so, he was married. And then they moved into France and studied at the agro there. And the, that's where De La Tour met him. And he'd worked for Moet and Chandon at some point. Part of the time in his training, he did work. And when they built up in St. Helena, he told them he was one of their employees. And they said, oh, don't believe it. But they went back and looked at the records and found it. And Mr. De La Tour met him in Paris. Yeah, Mr. Delator and Marquis, they both went and hired him. And then he came in 38, and then I think Mr. Delator died in 40, I think, 39 or 40. When did you first meet Andre? When I went to Beaulieu. So <laughs> yeah. 58. Yeah, 58. What was yeah. he like at that time? Well, he was, he was a little intimidating at that time. He was very energetic, and I, I he was not my primary boss, but he was, I did all the other stuff and as if he'd been a boss. But uh, he was, he was very nice. The thing he had, he was raising a grandson who was the same age as one of my sons and they were in school together. So it kind of got to be a friendship between families with the children. And, uh, well... What can I say? <laughs> what was he like at the winery? He was very strict on cleanliness, very strict about his wine. I mean, they were, they were his children. And so he meant to be, he was liked by everybody, but they also knew that he meant business. What he told them, they did. <laughs> Levy does such a great job with his, with his interviewing style. He just seems to know how to get the most out of it. I've learned so much. And one of the things I love is meeting young people uh, in the wine industry. And one of the first things I tell them is, you've got to listen to I'll Drink to That. And a lot of them haven't never heard of it before. And then I'll see them again a few months later and they'll thank me. Oh, that! I'll drink to that. I listen to it all the time now. I've learned so much. So that always makes me happy. 
I try to make sure there's more people listening all the time because it's one of the first thing I tell them. If I see a person, when you're excited about wine, when you're passionate about it, it takes you about two minutes meeting a person to realize they're the same way. Once I realize they have a passion for wine, and one of the first things I bring up is the podcast. I say, you got to listen to this, and so many of them have. As always, thank you so much for listening. The past 400 episodes have been so much fun to put together for you. So let us know in the comments or on Twitter what some of your favorite moments have been. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.